Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Joining us today is Brian Sells. Based in Atlanta, Brian is a civil rights lawyer specializing in voting rights, election law, and redistricting. He represents individual lawyers, civil rights organizations, political parties, candidates, and campaigns. Before founding his own firm, Brian was a senior litigator at the Department of Justice in the ACLU. Welcome aboard, Brian. Well, thanks for having me, Fraser. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to hear your voice. How did you begin the practice of voting law, and how did that get your attention as you were developing your practice? When I went to law school back in the early 90s, I knew I wanted to do something with civil rights or more generally something in public interest law to make our world a better place. And at the time, there were two very hot topics in public interest law, affirmative action and voting rights, because the Supreme Court had just decided a number of uh, landmark cases in both areas. So I studied up on both areas and I was able to to get a job doing voting rights work in, in one of my summers during law school, and I really fell in love with it, and the rest is history. Who were some of your formative influences when you were learning about the voting rights sphere? Well, my mentor is Lachlan McDonald, who is, um, was then and is still now with the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, and Lachlan um, brought uh, a large number of cases that uh, integrated the ballot in Georgia and throughout the South, and I had the opportunity to work with him uh, not only as a law student but then as a brand-new lawyer for 11 years when I finished my clerkship. So he would be, he would be my number one influence beyond all others. And so in the early stages of your career, what, what did he have you do? What were you working on? Well, you know, I came to work with him in Atlanta in the summer of 97, thinking that I would be doing work on voting rights in the South. And as it turned out, his big case at the time was in Montana. And so when I first worked with him, I spent most of my time working on Native American voting rights because the promise of the Voting Rights Act, which was passed in 1965, mainly to address issues here in the South, had not yet reached Indian country, and Lachlan was determined to change that. And so he and I worked quite extensively in the late 90s and early 2000s on bringing cases in Indian country in Montana, Wyoming, a lot in South Dakota. So that's where I spent a good bit of my work in my early career. Help us understand why it's important to have a full and fair representation in the political process. Well, you know, there are a lot of theories of democracy, but for me, what it comes down to is that the right to vote is preservative of all other rights. If you don't have the right to vote, then your right to things like equal treatment in housing and employment and education can more easily fall by the wayside. So if you believe in democracy at all, it's important to have full and fair representation. Many people assume that voting is as easy as registering to vote and then showing up at a polling location and pulling a lever, but at many times it's not that easy. What is the actual process of voting and, and how does it differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? Well, voting encompasses a lot more than just putting your, your ballot in the ballot box. It does change from place to place. I think there are something like 4,000 different entities in America that administer voting in some fashion, and many of them have different rules. So voter registration is a key piece of it. 
casting your ballot is a key piece of it. But the other piece that most people don't recognize is that districts have to be drawn fairly and political systems have to be set up fairly so that your ballot, once you cast it, can be meaningful and and count for something so that you're not just essentially throwing away your vote every time you, you cast it. I find in New York, uh, I'm Republican by background, but many times it feels like uh, as a as a resident of New York with an eight to one Democratic to Republican registration tally that uh, especially in a presidential election or something major statewide office that I'm not relevant. What, what's your comment on on those types of issues? Yeah, I mean, I think that's unfortunate. There are some things we can address. Uh, the Electoral College, as you know, is baked into our Constitution, and it would require um, constitutional amendment to get it out. There's some movement afoot to uh, have a national popular vote compact, which would perhaps address address that a little bit on the presidential level, whereby states would agree to cast their electoral votes for whoever wins the popular election. And that that has, I believe, gained support in New York. I think it has been adopted by the New York legislature. If I'm wrong, someone will correct me. But it hasn't yet gained acceptance by enough states to tip the balance and make it operative. But there's more, a lot more than just the presidential level. There's Congress, there's municipal or city elections all the way down. And the kind of fencing out that you just described as a member of a particular political party is something that the Supreme Court hasn't yet addressed head on, but which it may in the very near future. It's called partisan gerrymandering, and that's on the court's plate uh, for this coming term. And the quest to maintain power, I'm sure, informs a lot of the distortions that we're describing. How much of this is I guess I would describe as a natural metastasis of uh, the voting process, and how much of it is a concerted effort by a few people? (laughs) Well, politicians always want to preserve their seats. So I think a lot of it is what you might call a concerted effort by a small number of people. But I want to emphasize that it happens on both sides, or uh, if you want to look at it in partisan terms, there aren't any real innocent actors in the game of politics as far as I know it. There's no question there aren't any innocent ones. I've, I I worked in politics here in New York straight out of college, and there are a lot of good people, I think, surrounded by a, a good process but with a lot of countervailing factors. So I'm in, I'm in full agreement with you there. When you look at the voting process, the electoral process, uh, what are the great injustices or blockades to access that you're seeing right now? What, what's on your radar screen? Well, there's been a lot of noise in this election cycle about restrictions on access to the ballot in terms of voter ID, in terms of re- registration anomalies and difficulties in terms of access to early voting sites and absentee ballots. Following the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby versus Holder, which invalidated a portion of the Voting Rights Act, a number of states in the former Confederacy passed laws restricting access to the ballot, and those have been litigated extensively over the last several years. And all of those things impact 
the actual ability to get a ballot and to cast it. But I think we need to pay attention also to what happens after you cast the ballot. And this is the stuff about gerrymandering we were just talking about. That, I think, can affect as many people or more than restrictions on access to the ballot. And I wouldn't want to lose sight of one just because the other is in the news a lot, as it is today. And so with gerrymandering and mm-hmm. uh, the, the drawing of lines that, that produce inequalities and distortions of representation, how does one monitor that locally? And what is done aside from the general political process to address those issues? Well, most of the lines are redrawn following the census. And we're kind of in the middle of the decade here, gearing up for the next census. Lines will be redrawn everywhere probably in 2021 or 2022. But there are already efforts to gear up to make sure that 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 is done fairly or to one particular party's advantage or the other. For the average voter, it's very difficult to tell whether their votes are being diluted. That's the term we use if you're uh, essentially subject to a gerrymander or an election system that doesn't treat your votes fairly. The kind of thing I would look for is, uh, you know, whether the lines are unusual, whether electoral outcomes don't fairly represent the population of the jurisdiction, those kinds of things. My political science degree must have a lot of dust on it because I can't remember how this works. But but who is doing the line drawing once they have the data from the from the census? Well, that varies from state to state. Um, By and large, it's state legislatures who draw congressional district lines and draw state legislative district lines, but each state can set up its own process. And a number of states have set up independent redistricting commissions. Arizona is one example. Montana, Iowa, a number of states have chosen that route. And then once you get below that, drawing lines for things like the city council or county commissions, those sorts of things, that process is handled differently in different states. In Georgia, where I am right now, the state legislature draws county commission lines and school board lines and many city lines. But in other states, that's left up to the local bodies themselves. When I look at some districting maps, sometimes they look distorted or you've got one pod that's linked to another one by a street. Uh, What's the craziest example of that that you've seen? Have you seen whole archipelagos of uh, little islands that make up a district or um, are there other distortions that come to mind? Yeah, when I worked for the Department of Justice, I had the privilege of working on a case involving Texas's statewide redistricting for its House of Representatives. And the gerrymandering in that case was really extreme. And some of the districts, you know, have funny names, Space Invader District or the Running Man District. It's sort of common to come up with uh, funny names for how the districts look. But those are some of the most extreme examples of gerrymandering that I've ever seen in my career. So we got to get back to my example of New York City where the voter registration hues to one party or another. With the current election, we're hearing some of the most 
uh, rabid interest in third or fourth or different parties that I can remember since I guess going back to Ross Perot. And so with the two-party system as it continues to dominate, how do other parties, whether the Green Party or the Libertarian Party or others, how do they begin to penetrate the system? And, and what rules are set up to, to kind of help block them out? Well, there's all kinds of rules that block them out. Um, and, and the rules vary from state to state and locality to locality. And different parties approach their party-building activities in different ways. Some states, for example, will allow a party access to the ballot if their candidate for governor or some other statewide office gets a certain level. And so what you have in those states is parties who aim for the top. They run their candidates at the top level, and they try to get whatever that threshold is. In other states, parties can establish themselves by filing petitions and circulating petitions with signatures on them. In other states, they can become parties if they get enough people to register as members of that party. And so how parties build themselves will vary from state to state, even if it's a national party. But there's certainly a lot of attention on things like the presidential race and gubernatorial races and other statewide races. The Green Party, which is one I'm familiar with in uh, many places, has run candidates at more local levels and has been a little bit more strategic about how they've run things. Uh, the Libertarian Party nationwide has done a pretty good job of getting on the ballot and organized as a party, but it's just been hard work over time of building awareness and gaining adherence. And, you know, you have to put up good candidates who are able to uh, campaign effectively and attract the votes. One of the things we talked about a little bit before was the, the vested interests, the career politicians that are in place and can exert an, maybe an undue influence over the, the line drawing and the rulemaking. And so where do term limits come in? It would strike me that having a natural rollover effect for our elected officials may help to stem some of this tide. Or would that really concentrate more of the power in a traditional party system? Yeah, I... I have to say I'm not personally a fan of term limits because of what I have seen in places that have adopted them, like California. California has pretty strict term limits. And what has happened, according to most observers of California, is that you have lost um, a lot of expertise amongst the legislators, and the balance of power has shifted to the lobbyists because there's no term limits on lobbying. And and as a result, the lobbyists have a lot more power than they used to. Um, officials have to rely on them. Uh, the elected officials have to rely on them because they don't have the institutional memory or the resources to um, to do what they need to do without the assistance of people like lobbyists. And so under most proposals for term limits that I've seen, I am really concerned that um, it's more a solution in search of a problem where uh, uh, there could be real unintended consequences uh, changing the balance of power to uh, unelected officials rather than elected ones. But I, I think, uh, you know, your question 
also raises an important point that sometimes elected officials lose touch with their voters or become too comfortable. And my preferred solution to that is to have districts that are drawn up more fairly. Those are more likely to be competitive districts. And uh, and I think that will keep legislators on their toes better than term limits will. Well, I definitely see your point that if the institutional knowledge evaporates and you have to rely on lobbyists to educate the elected officials about the ins and outs of the job at rapid intervals, you definitely edge a lot of control over to the lobbyists and framing the agenda and getting what they want done. So point taken on that. I guess my other point as far as sort of career politicians, I guess I would take issue at some point where, and I guess I see it in New York where you have people who've just been here for term after term after term. And uh, it's it's just tough to get them to budge. I, I think that the redistricting does make sense. It's one way to keep these politicians engaged and, and accountable. Yeah, I think it's important that voters should choose their elected officials. And too often it, it goes in reverse where elected officials choose their voters. And I think that is a recipe for disaster. And unfortunately, that's the way it happens too often. We have such good data nowadays and the tools with which to manipulate that data about voter preferences, where they live, you know, all kinds of data on individual voters. It's it's really mind boggling and we can use that in drawing districts and, and we do use that data in drawing districts and most redistricting processes don't put very many constraints on how we draw districts. So elected officials, those that control the process, can freely choose what kind of voters they want in their districts and what kind of voters they want in their opponents' districts of the other political party. So it really has gotten, I think, out of hand, and I'd really like to see us get back to having the voters choose the elected officials mentioning data and a lot of the new tools that are available in the voting process, technology. We're at a weird transition point where many of us have remember the days when you had either cards and chads or levers to pull, and now it's becoming a much more electronic process. Do you view that as a welcome change? I, I would assume you do. I think we all do. And as we migrate to phones and computers for just about everything, why not have that be a part of the voting process? But it raises a lot of different issues as it relates to voter fraud and other chicanery. Where do you come out on that? Well, uh, let me say right off the bat that I think fears of voter fraud are overhyped, regardless of whether we're talking about technology or or any other methodology. So right off the bat, I think the voter fraud issue is one that has gotten far more attention than it deserves. But I think technology as an issue in voting is an important one. And I think where I come down is that there are definite pros and cons of using it. And in my view, when I look at technology, I ask myself, is it something that is going to make it easier to vote? Is technology something that is going to allow more people to vote freely? And I'll give you an example of some voting technology that I'm a big fan of, is that a lot of disabled voters use technology to vote privately and securely, and I wouldn't want to take that away from them. And voting 
uh, technology can also be beneficial for voters whose first language is in English. And so there are voting machines that can translate the ballot. I, I'm a big fan of those kinds of technologies, but I am uh, somewhat skeptical of uh, technology for technology's sake. And um, in the last decade, following the debacle of the 2000 election, Congress threw some money at voting technology, and uh, states around the country bought a lot of voting machines, and they were high-tech voting machines at the time. And uh, now they're no longer high-tech, they're low-tech and need to be replaced. And I don't know where that money is going to come from. And I'm concerned that if we focus so much on getting the latest and greatest technology, um, elections will become too expensive um, and, and, and really unnecessarily expensive. There's some good voting technology that is uh, not that expensive, uh, using open source software, using paper ballots that are read by, um, by uh, machines. Um, so I think, I think we're starting to be a little bit more strategic in how we use technology, and I think that's a good thing. I know cybersecurity comes up in my day job as a major concern, and while I'm not, uh, I'm as much of a conspiracy theorist as the next person, but I don't see that being a major issue from a voting perspective and having an impact on national elections and things like that. Is that something that, that worries you or keeps you up at night? No, it doesn't keep me up at night. I think we need to um, be vigilant and responsible, um, but I, it does not keep me up at night, and it's not something that I feel like um, is, a, is, a, uh, um, is a major issue at this point. I mean, uh, I think elected officials, or excuse me, election officials around the country, secretaries of state and whatnot, um, by and large uh, view it um, as something on the horizon to keep an eye on, but we don't want to let it distract us from um, the day-to-day -day of, of making voting accessible for more people. With the with the data and the tools and, and some of the technology we talked about, uh, I, I look back at a recent example that I found funny with Justin Timberlake taking a picture of, of his attending the ballot box and uh, potentially breaking a law or two in that regard. Do, do you worry about privacy and the use of that data maybe overreaching uh, what what may have been intended and maybe what we were used to in terms of the secrecy of the ballot? You know, I, I'm conflicted on that. I mean, Justin Timberlake is not going to be intimidated by anyone um, into voting a certain way or or otherwise. But um, there are people who are not as famous as JT who um, might be told by their employer that, um, hey, I want you to take a picture of your ballot so I can see that you voted the right way or else you're going to be fired. And that's, that's where the anti-ballot selfie laws really come from, is uh, trying to shield the individual voter from uh, undue influence by other, other folks, whether they be employers or party officials or 
um, wh- whoever else might want to influence that. Um, it also helps to um, taking a picture of your ballot can also be a way to to sell it to to someone. So in other words, you're a voter and you want to sell your vote to um, somebody who wants it. You take a picture of your ballot as sort of a receipt and and proof that you voted in a certain way. And I certainly don't want to see people engaging in that kind of behavior. So I guess I, I'd say I'm, I'm concerned about ballot selfies. Um, on the other hand, selfies are such a part of everyday life nowadays that um, I don't see a lot of prosecutions in our future. I I see the issues that you bring up and I definitely agree that you don't want those uh, bad outcomes to happen. But I I hear what you're saying at some point that you could clog the the whole system that way. So the election season is – we're knee deep in it. We're only a couple of weeks away from the presidential election. What are you working on now? What's taking up your time as you gear up for for the big day in November? Well, I – I feel like I'm a little bit in the eye of the storm <laughs> right now. <laughs> I was super, super busy in August and September when um, there were people trying to get on the ballot and fix last-minute things with, in terms of access to the ballot, access to polling places. Um, that really kept me busy. Now people are voting, and and it's really too late to um, be in the courts arguing for major changes. Um, I am uh, vigilant I'm, uh, on things going haywire, and I'm, uh, you know, I, for example, I helped out in a case here in Georgia involving um, the extension of the voter registration deadline because of Hurricane Matthew. I mean, nobody could have predicted that in advance. And it's a hurricane comes through and you got to deal with it. Right now, I'm waiting for the next hurricane, if you will, to come through. I certainly hope we don't have one, but I'm, I'm, I'm watching out on for things that could go awry. So far, the process um, has been fairly smooth here in Georgia and other places where I'm looking. And I hope, certainly hope it stays that way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So then, one, once the election is over, uh, are you is, is contested elections issues that have come up? Uh, that's got to be a part of your practice. How does that work? Well, uh, most states give a candidate either a right to have a recall, a recount, or the opportunity to request a recount if. Um, the election is close, and we'll find out on November uh, 9th, I guess, if there are any major elections that, that fall within that margin of, uh, of a recount, or some people call it the margin of litigation, where, where <laughs> litigation might actually end up changing the result or has the potential to change the result. And I don't think we can say today that that there are any that are going to be that close, but usually there are a few, and uh, I, I may be working on some of those. What kind of number is that? I guess the smaller the election, the the larger the controversy, potentially, if you're down to a few votes, but I would guess for something larger, maybe statewide, it'd be 
within a couple of, you know, half a percent or something like that? Yeah, it varies from state to state, but 1%, one half of 1%, quarter of 1%, those are some numbers that, that states use. Well, we've certainly had one of the most, I'm not sure entertaining is the right word, but uh, uh, controversial slash interesting election seasons this year, at least in the presidential sense. Uh, it's very interesting to hear how the the voting rules and the voting uh, procedures have an impact on things. Uh, at the national level, do you see any major hot-button issues that may pop up that, that we haven't really thought about yet? In, in terms of elections, um, no, I, I don't think I could say that there's one particular thing that I'm, I'm looking for. Most of the issues involving access to polling places have um, already been resolved in, in one fashion or another. Um, most of the issues involving access to voter registration have been resolved in one way or another. Um, so the big, the big thing that one often sees on election day are things like lines being too long because election officials didn't allocate their resources properly, could be malfunctioning voting machines. But I couldn't say that there's one thing in particular I'm looking for. Now, there has been some talk from one of the major party candidates about enlisting his supporters to observe and potentially harass and intimidate people at the polls. Whether that actually happens remains to be seen. I am frankly skeptical that there's going to be much appetite amongst his supporters for going into the places where he's suggesting that they go and essentially picking fights with voters. I think that's uh, probably beyond the pale for even most of his hardcore supporters. That's something I, I might keep an eye on uh, or am keeping an eye on, but I wouldn't say at this point I expect it to be a major issue come Election Day. Well, it sounds like it's up to the people to vote their conscience, and, and we're kind of past the point of no return then. Well, they are voting their conscience. I mean, we're seeing early voting uh, numbers that um, are at least as good as 2012 in most places and, and often uh, surpassing that. Early voting is becoming much more popular um, because it's so convenient for people. And uh, so, yeah, the voting is underway. One quick question, uh, I, and this is more is probably more arcane than anything else. But there was a lot of talk maybe a month ago about the uh, about Donald Trump or the you know, the presumptive nominee of the Republicans, uh, whether there was any any recourse as far as changing candidates. Was is, is that was that mechanism ever realistic, uh, especially with early voting? No, not really. Um, now we did see a late entrant. To the um, campaign, Evan McMullen, I think he announced his campaign on August 8th or something, which is extraordinarily late for modern presidential elections. And I think he's only managed to get on the ballot in maybe 15 or so states, and he's running as a write-in in many others, um, which I think is, an, is unfortunate that our process would be better off if he were, were on the ballot. But what you're talking about is slightly different. Uh, could the could the Republican Party or, or the Democratic Party, for that matter, have re replaced their candidates? And I think the consensus 
is um, that they could not have, um, mostly as a matter of internal party rules, um, that Republican Party rules would not have permitted that. But we do have the electoral college system, and so there's the possibility of what we call faithless electors. So if something were to happen to um, one of the candidates, the electors who convene in December in Washington, D.C. could uh, potentially cast their ballots for for anyone. That would be one way to replace them. Oof, that, that would that'd be a scary way to do it. That's when uh, faith in the system would be tested. Absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> Anyway, this has been really interesting and a really fun discussion for me. How do we stay in touch with you, and how do we keep track of, of your exploits? Well, there are probably two ways. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Brian. That's S-E-L-L-S-B-R-Y-A-N. And I also have a website for my law firm, which is www.briansellslaw.com. Excellent. Brian, thank you very much for coming on. Well, thanks, Frazier, for having me. I appreciate it. That was Brian Sells, civil rights lawyer and voting rights expert. FraserRice.com has our latest podcast, and we're getting a nice slate up and running. We're on our 13th now, and we're happy to have more coming on soon. Thank you very much, and have a great day.